All right, let the flood of live stream comments begin now. <laughs> I'm taking your guys' questions from the live chat, and I know they're flooding in at the moment. We're going to get 20 total questions today. I'm going to give you my best answers to those questions, at least off the top of my head. And hopefully it's a benefit to you. Hopefully it's a blessing to you. Hopefully it helps you learn to think biblically about everything. At least that's the goal. That's the agenda. That doesn't mean I perfectly think biblically about everything. But it does mean that I'm on that path and I'm trying to help others be on that path as well. So we're going to start today with a question from Colby Hill. And Colby Hill had asked, um, hey, Pastor Mike, my question was concerning a friend I have who does not believe in objective truth. I've tried to bring him to Christ, but I found it difficult given his epistemological views. And for anybody who doesn't know the word epistemological views, it's epistemology is like the study of like what we know and what knowledge is and that sort of thing. It's kind of a difficult area to study. But basically, you know, when you're telling somebody, hey, man, you need Jesus. Hey, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. When they respond with that's not true, you know, you can bring evidence to show them that the gospel is true. You could bring evidence for the resurrection of Christ. You could bring prophetic evidence to prove that the Bible is the inspired word of God. You could bring uh, your, the testimony of your own life and the transformation that God has brought in your life. You could bring things like that. But what if instead of saying Christianity is not true, they say Christianity is true for you, but not for me. Or I think that's good for you, but I don't believe in objective truth. So how do you respond to this person? And I'll, I'll admit, this is one of the easiest things in the world to refute and one of the hardest things in the world to change somebody's mind on. Meaning it's demonstrably, obviously false, self-refuting. It's horrible to think that there is no objective truth or that, you know, we, we have no reality, no reality when it comes to spirituality, right? Like it's just, it's just everybody lives in la-la land in their own imagination. I think this will happen when I die. And then Okay, well, then you'll you'll go where you think when you die. Muslims will go to their place. You know, Hindus will, will have their experience. Christians will have their experience. Jews will have their experience. Whatever they want to happen, that's what will happen because there is no real truth about it all. So how do you respond? Um, what I kind of want to do is I want to show somebody how monumentally stupid this view is. Um, not because they're st stupid exactly. That's not the point. It's not about their intelligence. Hugely intelligent people believe this stuff. But the view itself is really unwise. So I, I like personally, I like to use some illustrations or questions with this person. I'll say, so there is no objective truth. Here's a question I would ask your friend, you know, there is no objective truth. And they would say, that's right. There's no objective truth. And then you could ask them, well, how did you come to know that to be true? And wait, you don't want to interrupt their, th their thought process here. What you're doing is you're holding up a mirror to their own view and you're showing them, wait a minute, there's no objective truth is a truth claim. If there is no objective truth, then it's true that there's no objective truth, which means there is objective truth. This is what's called a self-refuting truth claim. You, you, It literally cannot be true. It's impossible. Um, truth is inevitable. It's unavoidable. It's, you can't fight against it, all right? It, it just, it just, that's how life works. So you could use other illustrations. So you, one person is thinking, um, Okay, but, but in matters of faith, in matters of belief, there's no objective truth. And even that itself is self-refuting because that's a, an objective truth claim about beliefs. So that's self-refuting. But it's very heartwarming because it, it, you could look at everybody in every religion and be like, I believe all of you all. And, and it's very, you know, la-la land, good ship lollipop kind of theology. And people like that because it helps them get along. But I like to use this illustration. I've used this in the youth ministry before. I said, let, let's pretend that I think... I think I use four guys. Four guys go up in an airplane 
And they all know when they get to the top of 10,000 feet, they're going to jump out. They're going to be pushed out of the airplane, whether they like it or not. And so they all prepare according to their beliefs, according to their faith. So one man believes that he is going to go straight out the airplane and he's going to fly. So his preparation is to put on a Superman outfit and he has a super suit and he's going to fly. That's what he, and he truly believes it. Another man believes that he's going to go up into space. And so when he jumps out of the plane, he prepares by bringing a spacesuit and he's wearing a spacesuit so he can survive in the outer atmosphere. And then another man believes that he's going to fall like a rock. I guess there's three guys. He's going to fall like a rock. And so he brings a parachute. So we have super suit, space suit, parachute. We got those three things. Ask your friend, what happens when they jump out of the plane? Right? Two of them die. One of them survives. And then when they, in a, it, you may have to fight them to get them to admit this. You may have to like not fight, but you know what I mean? You have to work with them because they realize the implications of this are hurtful to their opinions. So then you say, what if the person just totally believes? What if with all their heart, they believe they'll fly? Does that mean they'll fly? And the answer is, of course, going to be no. Now you apply this to what happens when we die. One man thinks that when he dies, he's going to stop existing. So he has no preparation for his death. He's just going to die. Another man believes that when he dies, he's going to go and experience 70 virgins and go into, into the Muslim version of heaven because he was a good Muslim. Um, and so he prepares accordingly, right? So he maybe he wages jihad. This is not most Muslims, obviously, right? This is a hypothetical scenario. So, so he wages jihad, wages holy war uh, as a way of trying to ensure his eternal fate. This is like wearing the spacesuit, right? And then another man says, no, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'll stand before God and I'll have to be punished for my sins unless I have faith and trust in Christ. So he puts his trust in Jesus. He puts his faith in Christ. All three of those die. What happens next? What we should all agree on is it's not whatever these guys want or believe. It's based upon the reality of what we face the moment we die. That's what happens. What's the reality? What really happens is based on truth, objective truth, not based on my beliefs. So while Christianity, your salvation hinges upon your faith, it's not, your faith isn't actually causing the salvation or anything. It's, it's the objective reality of the identity of God, the person of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus dying for your sin. And then he says, believe in me, begin relationship with me. I will uh, redeem, I have redeemed and I'll apply that redemption to you and I will forgive you and all that. So there's a few things. Walk them through some thought experiments that relate the real world to beliefs and show how it doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is what's objectively true. All right, let's go to some of your guys' questions here in the live chat. My name is Pastor Mike Winger. I am a pastor in Southern California who wants to try to help people learn to think biblically about everything. And I do that through the online content on YouTube. You might want to subscribe if you never have. And if you don't want to subscribe, don't, <laughs> but, uh, but it lets you get notified. I do videos on Mondays and Fridays, typically weekly at 1 PM Pacific time live. And I'm doing Bible teaching and theology and apologetics and answering your questions. And then occasionally do other things during the week as well. All right. Christian Liang has a question. Hey, Christian. And he says, uh, hi, Pastor Mike. Do you think that Melchizedek was a theophany of Jesus? How does the writer of Hebrews know so much about Melchizedek if there's only a few verses in the Hebrew scriptures about him? The Melchizedek question. Um, I like this. So Melchizedek, there are those. Okay. In Hebrews, it talks a lot, a great deal. It's like a whole chapter of Hebrews about Melchizedek, this character that shows up in Genesis, who's briefly there for a few verses briefly mentioned in the book of Psalms once, and that's it. 
And there's a whole chapter in the New Testament just about Melchizedek. And the idea here is that this guy Melchizedek is, is representing Jesus in some fashion. So in the Old Testament, for those who don't know, Abraham, he rescues Lot, his nephew Lot, um, and fights a battle to rescue him. And then he is on his way back to return with the, 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 the prisoners of war that these people had stolen. He brought them back. He liberated them. And now he's on his way back to deliver them back to their homes. And he runs into this guy, Melchizedek, who is a priest in Salem. He's a high priest, effectively, right? He's in Salem or ancient Jerusalem, it seems. Um, and there's a debate on that, but I think it, it's likely that it is. Um, at any rate, he then offers a, ten, a tithe, 10% of everything to Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek offers him bread and wine, which is like modern communion, which is a total picture of Christ. So here we have someone who's greater than Abraham, someone who, um, according to Hebrews, it's like the Levites tithed to Melchizedek through Abraham. And this, you got to know your Old Testament to get this. The significance of this is that, is that this, this thing about Melchizedek, the truth that's, that's encompassed in the life of Melchizedek is a truth that comes before the law and the law pays homage to is kind of the idea here. So Jesus is the ultimate message. The law was a tool that would lead us to Christ. That's kind of the main point. So the, the debate is this, and there's a lot more. I have a whole video on this, by the way. I have a video on Melchizedek and how he is a type of Christ. Um, someone could maybe share that. It's in my Jesus in the Old Testament series, which is a playlist online. Or you could type Mike Winger, Melchizedek, in the search engine, it should pop up. I do not think Melchizedek is an actual appearance of Jesus. I think that Melchizedek is a type or representation of Christ. And there's a big difference. So David is a type of Christ. He represents Jesus being the king, the called king, and who's going to build the temple, wants to build the temple. Um, you know, this represents Jesus in a fashion. Uh, Moses represents Christ. I think Melchizedek is a type like that. Those who disagree would say, no, no, no. In Hebrews, it says that Melchizedek has no genealogy. And in that, he's like the son of God. In fact, I wonder if I could um, maybe just bring up the passage for you guys. Let me see if I can, I think it's Hebrew, is it seven or seven, Hebrews seven. Let me bring it up for you guys. We'll read the description and I'll respond to the talking points of those who say that it's an actual theophany. Okay, so for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, first off, I noticed this. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Like he's actually a physical king of an earthly city. Okay, that's different than any theophany we see in the Bible. There are theophanies, appearances of God, where it comes in like a form that people can see, even touch, right? And and there's those theophanies or Christophanies. I think that all the theophanies are very likely Christophanies, but in particular, the second person of the Trinity. But here, this would be different because this would be a theophany where he came and lives like a full life for a long, long period of time, not just an appearance, as king of a local city. Okay, that's... Now, it doesn't prove it's not a theophany, but it's a challenge at least. He's priest of the most high God. Okay, so he's he's actually a priest who's um, not pagan. He's worshiping the true God. Interesting, right? Abraham isn't like the only guy that believes back then. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed, appoint, apport, apportioned, I can speak, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So th that is um, ultimately what Melchizedek means. Melchizedek, it's, it's breaking down the meaning of the name. King of righteousness. And Jesus is the king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. The city 
where he rules is peace. And so Jesus is the king of peace. He's righteous and he brings peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Okay, that's where people go, see, it's a Christophany. Melchizedek has no mom, has no dad, and has no genealogy. And here's the debate. Is this because Melchizedek, in real life, like if you met him, you would find he has no mother, has no father, and has no genealogy? Or because in the text of scripture, Melchizedek is introduced without introducing his mother, his father, or his genealogy. Now, in Genesis, up until this point, it's like everybody has a genealogy. Right, Adam down to Abraham, genealogy, genealogy, genealogy. And when you get to Melchizedek, the guy's got no genealogy. Does that mean he actually had no parents physically? I, I am inclined to think it's about the literary work of Genesis. He has no genealogy recorded in the text. God could have told you anything he wanted about Melchizedek, but he only told you the things about him that relate to him being a picture of Christ. That would be my my theory. It's, it's literary, not literal, if that makes sense. Um, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Okay, he never starts nor ends. So Melchizedek is still alive. Is that, well, I think he's talking about in the text. Melchizedek is just shows up, no genealogy. He's, it's, it's eerie how he just pops in there. He doesn't have the, the, um, the introduction of when he started to be alive. There's no birth, right? Abraham, he was born, right? We talk about, Terah has Abraham. We, we talk about Lot's parents. We, we get everybody's details, but not Melchizedek. He doesn't have a beginning of days, we, nor do we hear about him dying. Whereas everybody in Genesis, they were born, they lived this long, they died. Born, lived, died. Born, lived, died. So Melchizedek's like the first guy where you don't get any of that. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. And here's, what, again, where I say, look, it's, it's a type, not an actual appearance of Christ because he's resembling the son of God. If the purpose of Hebrews was to say Melchizedek is the son of God, is Jesus, why does it say resembling? Well, that doesn't really make sense to me. I think the statement resembling only works if he isn't actually Christ. So resembling, he continues a priest forever. There's a correspondence. Again, we never hear about him ending his priesthood. And we hear in Psalms about a continuation of the Melchizedekian priesthood in Christ, in the Messiah. Um, there's more I could talk about on all that. But of course, this is just a quick Q&A. <laughs> so I should move forward with more questions. I hope that helps you out, Christian. Uh, next question is from Mikey. It says, hey, Mike, the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. But I know that God is sovereign above all things. How do I reconcile these two truths in a way that's biblical? Thanks. So Satan's the God of this world in the sense that he is pulling the puppet strings of the world. And how is God sovereign over Satan? Well, there's perhaps two ways to be sovereign. One is he's pulling the puppet strings of Satan. Or he is somehow, you know, controlling Satan directly. Um, another way to be sovereign is more like the judo style of being sovereign. So there's this old TV show I used to watch. It was old when I was a kid, okay? I'm not that old. I'm getting there. Um, but uh, it was old when I was a kid. And it was called Kung Fu. I think it was just Kung Fu The Legend Continues or Kung Fu The Rich. I don't know. Anyways, this guy, actor David Carradine was in it. Anyway, he was like a, a, a guy that was raised by monks and taught Kung Fu. And then the show is very mystical and, and it's cheesy Hollywood stuff. But basically the guy would, he was nonviolent. He would never engage in direct violence or control of other people's lives. But at the end of every episode, it was like a routine. At the end of every episode, there's always some bullies in the town that he can't help it. He has to fight. And, but he would never actually throw a punch at them. He would only use their own force against them. Okay, 
follow me because this illustration, I think, helps us understand the sovereignty of God as it relates to Satan. So what he would do is he would allow the bullies to do their thing to a certain degree. But at some point, he would stand up and be like, no, no. And then they would go swing at him. And when they punched, he would always just grab their arm and redirect them. And he'd use their own inertia and weight against them. And this was like, this is what I thought Kung Fu was. Maybe Kung Fu is this. I don't know. No, any idea what Kung Fu really is. But they would, he would use his, their own weight against them and redirect them. So they'd go flying over a balcony or they'd fall. Some of you guys know the show. Some, some of us. That is, I think, kind of how God handles Satan. I think the idea is that the Lord allows Satan to do, have a certain amount of control. But there's times where God simply says, no, you can't do that. There's other times where God simply directs, you know, through his own weight. An example of this is the cross. Satan got Jesus crucified, right? Satan entered the heart of Judas, it says in scripture, to betray Jesus to the cross. Yet, yet, it was all part of the plan of God. Here is God using the inertia and weight and hate of Satan against his own plans. Satan didn't understand how this was going to be used for the salvation of the world or he never would have partaken in it. But God knows all things. So he's like a chess master that sees every move ahead, sees a, th a million moves ahead. He sees it all and he knows if I go here, they'll do this, they'll do this. I can use that later to get my checkmate. I see that as God's sovereignty is about his wisdom and his planning. And sometimes he just doesn't allow Satan to do things, right? Remember with Job, he had to ask permission to attack Job. There was some protection that was there ahead of time. And I think that uh, that's a good way to think about God's sovereignty. Yeah, and then we'll go to the next question. So this is from Stephen Serrano, who says, what are your thoughts on oneness Pentecostalism? Now, I, it's been a while since I've looked into oneness Pentecostalism. But um, yeah, I, I want to be careful here because this is a hugely theologically important issue. Um, I have seen a debate not too long ago with a oneness Pentecostal, and they were just out there. It was like, let, set aside the theological issues for a second. The type of dogmatic authoritative bully theology that was being represented from that group is the thing I'm actually partially worried about in the oneness Pentecostal movement. I'm hoping that this isn't normal, but there was a kind of like a bully theology, right? Where it's not, this is what the Bible says. See, let me explain it. Let me show you. It's like, this is what the Bible says. And I will yell louder if you don't agree. <laughs> okay, kind of a thing. And um, I think that that's unhealthy for people. But other than that, I do think oneness, meaning that like the, the Jesus is the father simply it's modalism right it's like this modalism view of the father becomes the son who becomes the holy spirit i think it's demonstrably false it's truly it's proven wrong in scripture and um so i mean those are my thoughts on oneness pentecostal theology i guess it, it's it's the oneness part that that concerns me the most simeon botha says i hi pastor mike is marriage a choice i have heard that marriage is god's will for most but i like paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. If someone desires singleness, could it go against God's will? Um, yeah, so I think that we actually have a lot more options in our lives than we often realize. I think that you can choose where and how you want to serve the Lord to a degree. Okay, you can't choose to do things you have no gifting in. You can't just, well, you could try, but it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be like doing something left-handed when you're right-handed. Um, but I think you can make a lot of choices. And in my own life, I really made a choice about getting married. I was like, I just, I want to get married. I realize getting married means I will have to do a less ministry because I'm getting married. But marriage is still a good thing. 
So I, I decided I wanted to be married. But I, I had a choice. I could have decided to be single, and that would have been a different life path for me. I think you, may, you can make a choice here. So the assumption that like, but what if God wants me to be married and I'm choosing to be single? I think you should remove that anxiety from your heart and you should instead be asking, look, these are both good choices, which, you know, marriage and singleness are both good. Singleness is better for ministry. Marriage, though, is a good and wonderful thing in your own life, as well as, you know, especially in shaping your character and, and in a bunch of other ways, too. Um, so singleness is better for ministry, but marriage in general, but marriage has other qualities that are also good. So it's like, these are both good choices. Do I take the scenic route? That will take me longer, but it will be more enjoyable. Or do I take the more direct route that will get me there quicker so I can get started earlier? It's like these are both good choices for different reasons. I think that's like that with marriage. It's up to you. It's up to you. And often people think maybe I have the gift of singleness. And I think what they're really thinking is I'm so disappointed in my experiences with dating and with looking for a spouse. Uh, or maybe I think nobody would like me. So I guess I have a gift of singleness. And I'd be like, well, a gift of singleness, if, if, if you have such a thing is more about I am content with singleness and I am now able to serve God more with my time. That would be more what it would look like. Not I'm losing hope that I could find somebody. Um, I, I think that, to be frank, I think in some ways we're just in the church, in the areas of the church that are often very committed, like real serious people like myself, we're often really bad about the whole dating topic because we're so worried about doing it wrong that we haven't really thought about how to do it right. And so we just end up staying single and never connecting with anybody and never kind of getting to know somebody with the express goal of let's see if we're going to maybe get married. And that maybe has held us back. Um, so, you know, is marriage a choice? Yes, I do believe marriage is a choice. Um, although for, there could be some people where it's like very clear God's called them to be single. But I, I think those are the exceptions to the rule. Like you're just the exception. Just don't put that on everybody. Yeah. All right. Chris Glenn has a question. John 3 where Jesus says you must be born again, it isn't like you you choose to be born, you just are. Any thoughts on that? Thank you, sir, for your thought out, careful and loving responses. Um, thank you, Chris, for that. I appreciate that. So it seems like you're, you're paralleling, you know, like, hey, in my first birth, I didn't make a choice, my natural birth. I wasn't cho choosing to be born. So therefore, I don't make a choice to be born my second birth. Um, I'm just going to say this, Chris, is I think you're drawing the the um the statement of jesus too far out so analogies always break down at some point born again is is like an analogy or a descriptor for salvation but it's not the same in every fashion for instance it's not like when you become born again you get tiny and and helpless and you're unable to feed yourself and you can't eat meat anymore but that's what happened in your first birth but we would never draw that out that way. We would be like, yeah, well, you just kind of have to know that you don't draw this analogy out that far. And that's all I'm suggesting here is this, this, this has nothing to do with it. So I imagine this is coming from a Calvinist perspective where someone says, as a Calvinist, you didn't choose to be born the first time. You don't choose to be born the second time. But here's the thing is, you don't choose to be born the first time because you don't exist. But in your second birth, you do exist before your second birth. So the thing that makes you unable to choose anything no longer is present. So I think that, that it breaks down there very much um, as assuming that the first birth is talking about natural birth and the second birth is talking about um, spirit birth, which I think it is. So yeah, there you go. Um, Brian Park says, what are your thoughts on attending a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever? Um, 
I would attend the marriage probably. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if I would perform the marriage, but I think I would attend the marriage. I'm just asking my straight, honest thoughts here. Uh, here's the thing. A marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is something we're told not to do. That's true. We are told not to do it. However, as soon as it's done, as soon as the marriage happens, we have an incredible flipping of that rule. So don't do it. Then the rule after it's done is make it work, stay together, glorify God in this. It's going to be very hard and you're going to need the support of other believers to keep it together. So, um, so I feel like I would attend the marriage. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe, I'll, maybe I'm going to rethink this later and change my mind. I feel like I would attend the marriage. Um, but before I do attend the marriage, I would have a conversation with my friend and say, look, this is not biblical. You shouldn't do this. And then I might attend the marriage as a way of saying, but I want you to know I'm going to support your marriage now that you're doing you're doing it. You shouldn't, but I'm going to support you. I want you to make it work. And no matter how hard it gets, I'm going to be there to help encourage you and push you forward and help you stick together. I can't do this with a, say, like a gay marriage, you know, two people of the same sex. I should say same sex marriage. That's a more accurate term. But a same sex marriage, I can't do this because this is there's no mandate for them to stay together because this is not a legitimate biblical marriage. That's And that's an unpopular view which is why it's more important that we have to know it and be able to say it out loud because we know how unpopular that is. I got to hold fast to my biblical truth. Um, so yeah, why I would perhaps attend that marriage but not say a same-sex marriage. Uh, Kimberly Mencina says, my church encourages kids to participate in communion. My four-year-old does not because we feel she's not ready, not because of sin, but not fully understanding what she's doing. Any thoughts? Um, I would personally put this, at what age do your kids do communion, I would put that squarely in the lap of the parents. So I wouldn't let the church be deciding an, a specific age. And, and here's here's one of the reasons why. I don't think it's age-related. I think it's knowledge-related, right? So you know the knowledge of your kid better than your church does and, your, and the pastor does by just establishing a number. By the age of fill-in-the-blank, they should be having communion. But you know, we have varying levels of, of development and understanding that happen. Kids are on different levels, even at the same age. So I would leave that squarely with the parents. Um, also, since there isn't a clear, in my opinion, a clear teaching on scripture about this, that's again why I'm going to have as much liberty as possible in how people handle it. But if I felt like parents, here's one place where I as a pastor might step up. If I felt like parents were um, unhealthily holding back their kids from participating in the life of the church, that's when I might say, hey, I think that you should reconsider this. I would try to be as careful as I can because they're responsible for those kids, not me. Um, Uris de los uh, Santos says, in regards to our spirit, soul, mind, body, mind, and heart, what does each biblical biblically consist of and what is their purpose? So I, I literally cannot answer this question, Uris, because I don't think that it's clear um, in Scripture. And maybe, maybe it isn't. I just don't have the clarity. I don't think it's clear. I think that there is overlap between, say, mind and heart. Um, in fact, in Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, often when you get the word heart, what it really is is the word like bowels or something. And we're using an organ to describe this like, I'm feeling it. I feel it. Oh, I, I'm, I'm there. You know, I'm committed. Kind of our, our experiential sense of where, of, of how our feelings are sort of like flowing from us. I don't know how else to explain that. So, you know, they might say bowels. We might say heart. I mean, we could have said lungs or we could have, we, we romanticize the word heart, but sometimes you forget that a heart isn't this little, this little heart, right? It's like this, it's this organ that pumps blood, you know? So that's just the way we talk. 
So if mind and heart, um, you know, Jesus knows what's in their minds. Jesus knows what's in their hearts. I'm not sure if I can always separate between mind and heart in scripture, in the use that the Bible has of those terms. And um, yeah, mind might refer more to like what facts are you thinking about and heart might refer more to like what um, what commitments you're having. But I say might very carefully there. That's just a maybe. Spirit and soul are, are notoriously difficult to separate. Sometimes the word soul seems to be using seems to be used in a way that overlaps with the use of the word spirit. Other times it seems to be very different. And so I think you have to take it in context rather than having, this is what the word always means. I think you have to look at each, each verse in context to understand it. And that's probably a better way to look at it. Yeah. Um, all right. Chip Lutick says, what are your thoughts on this prevalent kind of repentance free Christianity where psychological goals, self-improvement and fulfillment have replaced pursuing holiness? I think that um, often Christianity is not destroyed in the hearts of people because of what they're denying as much as because of what they're avoiding. And so if you see people who are intentionally teachers, intentionally avoiding the idea of repentance, sin, judgment, hell, if they're intentionally avoiding those things, like they just won't talk about them, then what they end up doing is they end up painting a picture that is distorted, a distorted version of Christianity. And um, what they also end up doing is they end up overemphasizing other areas because they have to fill in those gaps with something. So this is what I see happening in the case of like, um, uh, like say Joel Osteen or something, right? Like this is, this is just a there's a massive avoidance of unpacking these very huge human issues of I am actually a sinner who has been living in rebellion to God and I need the grace of Christ. I need to come to him. I need to turn to him. This is a, a central part of the gospel because it's a central part of the actual problems of human beings. And if I just tell you how to fix your life then the, the, then and don't give you the idea of repentance and faith and trust in Christ and that there's like there are those who are with him and against him and that's a big deal. If I don't do that, I like the phrase, I'm rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And there's a temptation to do this. Even as pastors, like I've had counseling with people where in counseling, I realize there's major spiritual rebellion against God just throughout this person's life. But they're really just here for advice on how to fix their marriage. And I have to ask myself, do I help them where, they, where their felt need is, marriage? Or do I try to address the real need? Like sober evaluation of your ungodly self and repentance and commitment to Christ. Where do I go with this? If I help their marriage, they'll like me. Maybe it'll be a bridge to later talk about those more important issues. But if I talk to them about this like sin stuff, they're just going to be gossiping about me later on in the congregation. <laughs> um, and that's true in many cases. And I think that this is, this is the challenge. Now from the pulpit, it can be the same thing. Um, I just think we have to we have to speak truth. And if we really love people and care about people, we'll talk about the issues that really, really matter to them um, and matter from a biblical perspective, right? Not just from their perspective, which means sin and all that stuff. So what are my thoughts? Uh, Repentance-free Christianity where psychological goals like self-improvement and fulfillment have replaced pursuing holiness. I think it is, um, it is a radically distorted picture of Christianity and it will yield radically painful results. That being said, psychological self-improvement and fulfillment are really important.
they are. What we need to do is have a Christian understanding of them and not a self-centered, worldly understanding of them. I need to understand that when I am weak, then I am strong. That's Christian self-improvement. I need to understand that um, my contentment does not depend on what I have. It depends on my heart of, of contentment, especially regarding not just my property and my, and my health and my well-being, but regarding the statement, I am with you, I will never forsake you. I will never leave or forsake you. This, according to Hebrews, that is the source of my godly contentment, not my wealth. So this is, I mean, you could call this Christian self-improvement, right? But it's, but it's biblical. I'm content because God is with me. That's the reason. Not because I got a better job, because I got better pay, because of all those things. So, I, I mean, that to me, that's the self-improvement I want as a Christian. Uh, Luis Sorensen says, hello from Denmark. And hi, Lu Luis. I, I think that this is, or Louise, I think that this is uh, wonderful that you guys can see me from across the world in Denmark. Um, all right. Revelation 3.16 says, um, or it's a question about Revelation 3.16. So then because you are lukewarm uh, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. What does that mean? Lukewarm Christians will not be in heaven. All right. And then the big question here. Uh, Louise, is what does lukewarm mean? What is lukewarm in Revelation 3? And let's look at the passage together for anybody who might not have it fresh in their heart or mind. Um, I'm going to back up a bit. This is, a this is the letter to the church in Laodicea. Jesus speaking to the church in the book of Revelation, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So he wishes they were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I have need of nothing. Right? They've got all the self-improvement going on in the worldly sense. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is exactly what I was just talking about. Felt needs. Real needs. Right here. Felt needs. Rich, prospered, I don't need anything. Real needs. I'm poor, wretched, pitiable, blind, naked. Then he goes on, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. All right, this is Christian self-improvement. The results are what? Real riches spiritually. The white garments, which is the holiness of life. Um, so the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is, it's Jesus's love that hasn't been being harkered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, which is to say, this is for us, not just for them. What is lukewarm? Okay, so historically, there's been statements that Laodicea is a place where there were hot springs. Um, and so they're known for having like these hot water um, that comes down. And the problem is that by the time it gets down to Laodicea, it's like lukewarm. Um, I, I haven't confirmed this. This is something I've read in commentaries. I haven't confirmed it independently. But but I think it gives us a little clue as to what the problem with lukewarm is. Uh, Jesus doesn't mind hot. He doesn't mind cold. You know, there's as much of a debate about what cold meant as there is what lukewarm is. <laughs> so here's my theory, since I don't have time to talk about it in great detail. My view is this, the hot water is hot because it's like fresh hot springs out of the ground kind of thing, or because also drink and food tastes good when it's hot. The cold is also a good thing. It's not, it doesn't mean, cold doesn't mean you're anti-Christ, doesn't mean you're, you're rabidly against Jesus, but Jesus would rather you have you 
have you fighting him than have you just lukewarm as a Christian? Like, I don't think that's true at all. I mean, when he says, you know, he's going to be betrayed, but woe to the man who betrays him. He's not like, good for him. At least he's cold. I don't think, I think that's wrong. Cold is a positive thing as well. Cold is something that is, is fresh. It's, it's tasty to eat. It's nice and cold and refreshing or drink for that matter, if it's water. Then you have the other side, lukewarm. Lukewarm. What makes lukewarm lukewarm is that it used to be hot or it used to be cold and it has sat in the, in the environment and it has adapted itself to the temperature of the environment around it. A Christian that's lukewarm, in my opinion, is a Christian that is become worldly. Over time, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, the worldly mentalities that when they were young and fresh and zealous in Christ, that they used to be really worried about. They don't think they're that big of a deal anymore. They think they're more enlightened now. Oh, you know, I used to be like that. You Christians, like all zealous and kind of a fundy, fundamental. I like the word fundamental is like the most flexible slur you can have against Christians nowadays. Everybody you don't like is a fundy and you're more enlightened than those dum-dums. And um, I think that that's an unfortunate situation. Yeah. Now your question, given all that information, is the lukewarm person saved. Um, he says that he'll spit them out of his mouth. I don't know that this verse answers the question of whether they're saved or not. And I'll tell you one of the reasons is because it's, it's them as a church, not just individually. So the statement about them being pit pitiful, poor, blind, naked, it's about the whole church. Laodicea just has a thing going on. Their church culture is lukewarm. He'll spit them out. I think this means that Laodicea, as a church that has, is having an impact in the community around them, is going to Jesus is going to stop using them for that impact. I think that's probably the implication. I don't think it's exactly about individual salvation. Now, does that mean that they are saved? No, 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 no. Does that mean they won't lose their salvation? No. I just think that it means this verse doesn't comment on that topic. I think this verse is unrelated to the issue of whether they're saved or not. I hope that that helps. Those are my thoughts on it. And... I appreciate hearing your guys' thoughts, too, in the comment section below. Let me make sure I, I'm, I know where I'm at here. Um, that was Louise. Okay. Zoe Abundant says, what happened to Jesus on the cross? What did it mean that he took God's wrath? Was it just pain and death like we deserved or something more like the equivalent of eternity in hell? Okay. So Jesus takes God's wrath on the cross. That That's a phrase that's super controversial, actually. Did Jesus experience the wrath of God? Um, and, and you could put it different ways. Was God wrathful at Jesus? Well, it depends on what you mean by wrath. Was he angry at Jesus? Displeased by Jesus? No. In fact, it says it pleased the Lord to, to bruise him in scripture. He, his, his sacrifice is approved. Everything he does on the cross is approved by God. The father looks at him and everything he's doing is right and good. So I, I wouldn't say the, the God is wrathful at Christ in the sense of like emotional displeasure directed at Jesus. But, but the wrath of God is also seen in the Old Testament as not just God's emotional perspective towards, towards people, but also God's anger about sin. Okay, well, in that sense, the, the sin of man was put upon Christ. And so God's anger towards sin was dealt with on the cross. So there's a truth to that. Does that mean that God was like, you know, if we had a cartoon image of him, that his face was turning red and, and you know, 
his eyes were bulging out and stuff like that. Like, I'm not saying that. I don't think we should do that. But I, I think that we could say his anger towards sin was displayed on the cross. So there's a, there's an element there. Where you, you could use the term God's wrath was poured out there. Another sense in which God's wrath was poured out on the cross is that um, wrath in the Old Testament is actually when God brings pain or suffering or judgment into the real world because of people's sin. So Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed was God's wrath because it was like, okay, and now you're going to pay for the sins that you've been committing. And in that sense, the wrath towards my sin was expressed in judgment that that fell upon Jesus on the cross. So there's two senses in which I would affirm God's wrath on, on Christ. One is God's displeasure towards sin is displayed on the cross, right? Another is God's outward um, punishment of sin is also happening on the cross. So in those two senses, I think Jesus experienced God's wrath. But the one I probably wouldn't say is that God was actually displeased with Jesus in a personal sense. The father's not displeased with the son. There's perfect harmony and unity and love going on the whole time. That's something I would not say. So this is why it becomes kind of a complicated issue to talk about. I hope that those things unpack it. If you want more, look at my series on my playlists on YouTube on penal substitutionary atonement, which is a doctrine about kind of like how did Jesus's cross save the world, which is a pretty serious and important doctrine. And I have a whole series. I talk about it, a bunch of details on it. Um, I do not, to follow up your last part of your question, was it just pain and death like we deserved or something more like eternity in hell or the equivalent of eternity in hell? I think it was pain and death and the sense of shame. I'm going to add on to that. So it was physical pain. It was actual death. Um, physical human death, right? He, God didn't die on the cross, not technically. Well, his, his, his God nature didn't die. Like God stopped existing or something like that. But the human physical being and his humanity experienced human death on the cross, just like we do. I probably said that very clumsily. So forgive me, you guys, that should be said very carefully. Um, so I, I probably didn't do that quite right. <laughs> I'm thinking back to what I just said. Did I say that right? Um, but, but anyways, yeah, there was an actual death in the same sense that you, me and you die. And he didn't deserve it, right? We die because of sin. He, di he died because of our sin. He was born holy and lived holy and perfectly. But did Jesus experience hell or the equivalent of, the eternity, of eternity in hell? I, I'm not inclined to think so. I don't think we have clear teaching that says that Jesus like suffered in hell. I think he descended to proclaim these truths to, to the spirits in prison, scripture talks about. That doesn't mean that he went down and like suffered pains and hell suffering for days. I think he was proclaiming truths. I think when he says it's finished and he dies, that it was already taken care of. The suffering was done. The veil was rent. That At that moment, all the payment was paid. And now it was just a proclamation and then the resurrection. Uh, but I do want to add to the physical pain and the death that Jesus experienced, I think there was a sense of shame that he experienced on the cross that we probably can't even measure. And you might think, well, shame's not that big of a deal. Are you sure? Well, have you ever felt incredible shame? Incredible shame. Shame and guilt that you were so embarrassed to just be you. To even be the person who had done those things and who was caught and seen to have done those things. Um, I think guilt is one of the worst human emotions that exist. And I think Jesus experienced the feelings of all of our guilt for all of our sin on the cross. So I do not think that we can overstate the difficulty, the suffering, and the hardship of the cross, not just um, physically, but spiritually as well. Mia Joe has a question. Hi, Mike. Hi, 
uh, I got saved a couple months ago. Uh, great. Congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. Any tips on studying the Bible? Where could I look to get background information on different books of the Bible before I begin studying them? I think for you, where you're at right now, Mia, um, I'm just going to throw out a, a tip, which is to get like a study Bible, like an actual study Bible that you could look at. I don't have a recommendation where I could say, hey, the notes in this study Bible are really reliable. Mike Winger thinks they're trustworthy and good because I just don't know. Um, I don't use study Bibles that much. I'm usually, my head's just all in a bunch of commentaries and I find a hard time even finding one to recommend um, because it's also scattered in my own studies. But um, a study Bible is probably a good way to go. And I think the ESV study Bible is probably going to be pretty decent or maybe the, the Christian Standard Bible has a study Bible that might be decent. The NASB has a study Bible that, that I think would probably work for you. I think any one of those might be a good place to start. You just have to remember this, Mia, is that the footnotes and the study notes aren't the Bible, right? The Bible's the, in that main text. This is just someone giving you their opinions and you should always be ready to disagree with them, but know that there are in, in a lot of ways good guides to help understand the scripture better. The reason why I say get one study Bible is it's one resource that has a little bit of detail for every place you are in the Bible. And that's kind of what you want because you want that Bible to come alive to you. You want to understand it better and having a resource that does that is good. If you're looking for an online version, I would go to blueletterbible.com. It is free and they have commentaries for different verses there. And in my opinion, the commentaries on Blue Letter Bible are more reliable than some of the commentaries you're going to find in other places. And I mean spiritually safe, reliable. <laughs> um... Okay, CM has a question. Dear Pastor Mike, thank you for all your work. It has been a great blessing. Could you please explain why there are two demon-possessed men in Matthew 8, but only one in Mark 5? Um, Karina from Germany. Cool, Germany, nice. Um, I like Germans. I don't know what it is. I think I think Germans are just very like logical, or at least your reputation is this. You guys are like more like logical and systematic about things, and um, I like that. All right, so let's see. Could you explain why there's two demon-possessed men in Matthew 8, but only one in Mark 5? So this is this is the demoniac passage. So in Mark 5, and I, I've actually taught through this not, not too long ago, but the demoniac or the man who is possessed with many demons, Jesus heads to the south of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, like the southeast shore. And there he gets off the boat and this man who's possessed comes to him. He heals him. He's in chains. He keeps breaking the chains out. He's hurtful to himself, cuts himself. And then he heals him. Jesus heals him, sends him off into his village to just tell the world about me. Tell them what, the, what great things the Lord did for you. And there's this cool, subtle thing about the deity of Jesus in that passage in Mark. Then we have Matthew 8 that tells us that there were two demon-possessed men. Now, some people read one demon-possessed man. You hear all these details. Two demon-possessed men. And they go, well, which one was it? Was there one or were there two? This might sound trivial to, or trite to say this, but if there's one, if there's two, rather, if there's two, then there's one. Mark's just interested in the one. Because the one is the one who went and had maybe had the most dramatic demon possession and exorcism. And he is the one who goes out and tells the town about Jesus. And so Mark's interested in that one. So he focuses on that one. And then Matthew tells us about both because he has his reasons for telling us about both. Both of these guys being inspired by the Holy Spirit. The reality is that if you've ever told stories about your life, even their accurate stories, you do the same thing. So if me and my wife and two of our friends went to go see a movie... Let's say we, we go to the movie theater and we watch Superman 85 or whatever movie's out right now. And we go and we watch the new Superman. Um, 
and there's four of us that go. And then later on, I'm doing a live stream and I tell you, yeah, me and my wife saw uh, Superman 85 the other day uh, in the theater and I thought it was pretty good. I thought they did a good job. For once, Superman wasn't really boring and bland and and uh, with no personality. So that was pretty good. I liked it. And then a month later, I'm doing another live stream and I said, me, my wife and another couple went to go see the movie. And then you could say, Mike, that's a contradiction. You know, you, you said it was just you. But wait, I never said it was just me. I'm just telling the story. I'm only interested in the me and my wife part. Later, for some reason, I want to tell you about the other couple. Matthew and Mark are doing the same thing. We get this in other places too. One blind man or two blind men? Well, it was two, but he just talked about one because he had a specific reason to do that. Um, we Sometimes we ask for more exacting, um, and uh, maybe not exacting, but more full storytelling than what the Bible's giving us. You should give us every event that happened that day. But can you imagine how long the Bible would have to be to give you every event. So it's more summaries. Colby Hill has a question. How should I approach a friend who does not believe in objective truth? Oh, guess what, Colby? I, I, your question was the first one I did in the intro. So there you go. For question 15, see question number one. April Stafford, um, how do you respond to teaching that says that verses that say homosexuality, homosexuality is wrong are actually about pedophilia, not about same-sex relationships? Do you have a video on this? Oh, do I ever, April? I spent a, a long time studying this topic. And I did a four-part series on the Bible and homosexuality. And um, this was a way back in the day. Um, but I did do this. And it's free. It's all online. It's all available. In part one, I deal with the Old Testament passages and how people try to reinterpret them. And the Bible's clear. Look, I care about what Scripture says. And it absolutely condemns. Old and New Testament homosexual behavior. When it comes to identity, that's more of a modern construct. Okay, it's talking about the behavior, not the identity. The modern construct of the identity is is not uh, actually the thing we, I want to focus on. At any rate, first video is Old Testament. Second video is New Testament. It's in that second video you want to watch. Second video where I deal with like, what about ancient Romans? What about the, these words that are used? Um, there's specific words that are used, and I quote from. Get this right, pro-gay Greek um, scholars and historians to prove the case that I'm making on what the text actually says. It's, it's unavoidable. There are those who try to reinterpret the Bible to, to be okay with like loving same-sex relationships. And I deal with that very directly in that passage or in that, in that video, the second video in my homosexuality series, which hopefully someone will be able to post in the live chat comments for you guys to check out. Yeah, it's, it's unavoidable. It's it's just the clear teaching of the scripture on the topic, and it's it's an area that will get us in increasing, increasingly uncomfortable situations because um, culture never just says I'm going to sin. Culture always says, no, it's not sin. What I'm doing is good. This is this is the this is the growing depravity of our culture. Is when we we don't just say I'm going to sin and I don't care. We say my sin is good. I don't just say, oh, the, the, the pornography like plague around the world right now, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's just sexual expression. You, 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 know, you, you make it into, into piety. You switch evil for good. And that's what's happening. Josiah has a question. What do you do if you can't live at peace with a family member at home? Um, the, the one verse you want to remember, Josiah, is, is in Romans where it says, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably. So Josiah, is there something you can do that's not ungodly 
that would help increase the peace in the home? And if the answer is yes, you have to do that. That's your Christian call. And you do it under the Lord, not just under that person. You do it under God. So you're not yelling at them. When they shout at you, you don't shout back. When they call you names, you don't call names back. When I mean, these are just, it's just turn the other cheek. It's, it's living piety and true piety and holiness and godliness, regardless of the things that they're doing. So that you could say, not only am I justified in my behavior, forget being justified. I am being Christ-like in my behavior. That's what you have to go for. Now, does that mean that you will live peaceably with them? No. I'm just saying as much as it depends on you. And then at the end of the day, you know, look, the angst, the bitterness, the hardships, the the, the, the angry words, the sinful behaviors, they're, they really are all on that person's side, not mine. I'm walking in holiness and godliness and love. That's the call. Die to yourself. Follow Jesus. Dimitar um, Bratov says, Hi, Mike. Greetings from Bulgaria. Nice. Um, grateful for your videos. I like David Wood, but do you think his approach is biblical? Is it is effective, but isn't it too harsh? Um, I don't, I mean, I, I don't really know <laughs> about all that. Um, so David Wood, is, has he has his YouTube channel. I can't do what he does, partially because I'm just not wired that way, um, as far as like the kind of in-your-face sort of antagonistic style that he has. But I do fall short of saying something's wrong with what he's doing. Overall, I think in some videos, he goes too far. Okay. In some of his videos, he goes too far, but does that mean I have like a blanket statement that what he's doing is wrong or he's, or he's doing generally doing things wrong? Uh, I don't. And part of it is just this, to be honest, Dimitar, is that I'm just not the judge of another man's servant. And I don't see David Wood teaching and preaching error, which to me would be something I'd want to openly speak about. And I, and I don't see him, um, like so crossing lines on a regular basis that I'm thinking, I need to condemn that. I need to be openly against that. I do see that with other people. I could mention other YouTubers who are doing things that I'm like, yep, that's problematic. That's wrong. That's consistently an error that they promote. I want to say something about it, but, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for David Wood, his, the growth of his channel, the success of his channel, the things he highlights and brings attention to, but I don't actually watch all his videos, so I can't actually speak to everything. Um, is it too, is, is, is approach too harsh? What's clear is it's too harsh for some people. But we're asking, is it morally too harsh? And that's a question I don't, I'm not sure. So I'm not going to worry about it because he's not my servant. Uh, Gringo Nebrasa says, at Pentecost, they were mocked for appearing drunk. Does this suggest that we should expect laughing, shaking, falling when closely sensing the Holy Spirit? Oh, Gringo... <laughs> Gringo Nebrasa. I don't know what Nebrasa means, but I know what Gringo means. Uh, oh, oh, Gringo. <laughs> I, uh, I'm glad you asked this question. Um, drunk in the spirit is a phrase you may have heard. Are we to be drunk in the spirit? Is, is, it, is it a fruit of the Holy Spirit when I'm just like, oh, I'm out of it. I'm like, oh, man, that's pretty good. You know, that is that like the Holy Spirit? where you're laughing uncontrollably and hysterically, where you behave in what would normally be considered irrational ways. Is that a fruit of the Holy Spirit? One, and my answer is easy, no. Nope, fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. So losing self-control is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit because a fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. 
that seems simple. That's a biblical truth that I think applies to this question. But there are some who want to say, no, 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 no. The Bible supports my view that drunk in the Holy Spirit is like a real thing because look, in Acts 2, the people thought they were drunk. Okay, here's a list of problems I have with this obnoxious distortion and application of scripture. One, the reason they were accused for being drunk was not because they were behaving in a drunk manner. The text tells us it was because they were speaking in tongues, which some people there couldn't understand, right? So if somebody spoke in French and a Frenchman over there understands it, but I don't speak French, I think they're speaking blah, 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 blah. So I accuse them of being drunk. They're drunk. No, no, we're hearing them in our own language, guys. That fully explains the accusation. It's not behavior that relates to drunkenness. Like, oh, we're acting crazy. It was a misunderstanding of the use of tongues that was causing them to be accused of being drunk. Second reason. These are the unsaved people who don't understand what's going on that accuse them of being drunk. Yet some Christians are saying, no, dr it really is like drunkenness. And they're, they're taking the place of the accusers, right? Yes, being filled with the Spirit is like drunkenness. Second reason. Third reason, Scripture does tell us what the gifts of the Spirit look like, and it shows us these things, and these hysterical laughing, losing self-control, getting knocked on your face is not consistent with those things. I, I went to a church when I was in my teens where they did this stuff, and I thought, because in my, in my naivety, in my lack of understanding Scripture, and in my desire to know God and experience Him more, I just thought, I want that too. They're doing that. I want it too. But I refuse to have it like in a fake way. And so I just sit there for hours hoping for something to happen, waiting for the Holy Spirit to take over, waiting for something to happen. Um, at one point, true story, at one point, I'm standing there at, a, uh, at, at this church, this hyper, I'll call it hyper Pentecostal church. I'm still... Pentecostal, at least I think I am, <laughs> and uh, and I'm still at this at this church, and I'm standing there, and they're praying for me to be slain in the spirit, right, to pass out, to fall over, and the way it would work with everybody, because I was new, I was still a newer Christian, I was really unchurched, and so I'm there, and I'd see it, they pray, and after a while, they fall over, and the people are there to catch them, and I'm standing there, and I'm standing there for so long, waiting for me to pass out, you know, that uh, that people are getting frustrated with me, and the guy who's standing next to me starts sighing. <sighs> And he's just a fellow teenager. And I can tell he's irritated that I'm taking so long. And so I started feeling embarrassed and very self-conscious. So I pretended. I looked over my shoulder and I saw he was still there. I want to make sure he was there and to catch me. And then I just like started slowly going down. And then he laid me down. And then I'm laying there on the ground feeling like an idiot, being an idiot. And I'm laying on the ground. And there's this mic cable coming off the stage going right across my face. And it's just really hurting my face. I'm like, man, this really bugs my face. This mic cable is right on my cheek. And so I just, I, I just kind of like opened my eyes and I went and moved over a little bit and then closed my eyes again because I don't know how long I'm supposed to stay down. That is one of my most embarrassing spiritual stories because of peer pressure. It's the only time I participated in something that they did. It was peer pressure. And I don't think it's biblical. Dustin Dusty Matthew says, my friend has said to me once and a couple of other times, my relationship with God and religion in general is something I keep private. Is this biblical? How do I respond? I actually had a question like this recently. Um, if your relationship with God is something you keep private, therefore you don't want to talk about it, then it's not a very good relationship. What kind of relationships do we, forgive me, I know I sound like I'm harping, um, but that's the question we got. So 
What kind of relationships do you have that you don't want to tell anybody about? Think about it. In your life, have you ever had a relationship with someone that you wouldn't talk about? It was because something was wrong with it, wasn't it? It was because you were embarrassed about it, wasn't it? You were afraid you'd get in trouble for that relationship. You were afraid it would cause conflict. You were afraid people wouldn't like that relationship. Maybe you don't like that relationship. That's why you're quiet about it. That's why you don't speak about it. If you're silent about the truth of Christ, you're not much of a Christian. If you're embarrassed about Christ, he'll be embarrassed about you. If you deny him before men, he'll deny you before God, Scripture says. So my relationship with God is, is real. That's why I speak of it. That's why I wear it on my chest. That's why I want the world to know about it. This is why I'm unashamed of it, because it's real, because it's true. I mean, if, if, if your friend got a celebrity photo with some, some celebrity they like, maybe like Will Smith, and they get a picture with Will Smith, and I'll bet they would post it on social media and be like, look, I got Will Smith, look at that, I got to meet the guy. But yet my relationship with my Savior and my Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want to put that on display. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want people to know about it. I'm not that excited about that. I'm kind of embarrassed. It's private. It's personal. I'd like to keep it to myself. I think that this is, um, yeah, I think this is, I think this is the bottom line is that Christians, pardon me, from the beginning of our walk with Christ are called to live openly and honestly and boldly before the world, living out our actual faith. I am known as a Christian wherever I go. Um, that's just the reality of it. And if I don't want to talk about it and I pretend that's because it's personal, that's not the reason why it's because I'm embarrassed. It's because I'm embarrassed and that's not a good thing. So I, I appreciate you guys joining me. Uh, we're just trying to learn to think biblically about everything. I don't pretend that every answer I give is perfect, but you guys have given me the feedback that this Q and A format is really helpful for you, is good for like processing just random things in a biblical fashion, hopefully. You know, like this question about is my relationships private yet? I mean, look, read the book of Acts and, and ask if any of the apostles thought that about their relationship with Jesus you know, as they're getting beaten and imprisoned because they won't stop talking about Jesus. You know, this this is a healthy, helpful thing, hopefully for you. And I appreciate your guys' feedback. I do want to announce again, I started a second YouTube channel just last week or this week, early this week. And the goal of this YouTube channel is just to help evangelical Christians to do really well on YouTube. So I want to teach you tips and tricks and strategies on how to do better on YouTube. Um, so it's called YouTube Tactics with Mike Winger. You could just Google it. Probably you'll find it. YouTube Tactics with Mike Winger. And if you or someone you know is interested in doing YouTube for ministry, um, incorporating Christianity into whatever they are doing on YouTube, then, then that's the channel for them. Hopefully it'll bless them. Other than that, I will see you guys. Um, I don't know if I'll be doing a video Monday. You'll just have to watch and see my channel if it pops up or not. I'm, I'm still not entirely sure what's going on for the next two Mondays. We'll kind of have to wait and see a little bit. But other than that, um, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining and have a great day. Thanks again to my mods for being there to help regulate. You're much appreciated. Oh, um, yeah, there's just one other thing. People were asking me if this gummy bear was real.